0: Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This with your friend, with your faithful American patriot, Zudi Jasser. Always here to bring you that unique voice that topic that uh, no one will cover or that people just seem to be missing as it runs along the bottom of the screen. And this week is no different. I hope if you've listened before, you're back to get more and let your friends know. Follow us on Blade Podcast Network. Go to theblaze.com backslash podcasts or find me at iTunes and SoundCloud and subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe and share. Every week you get the opinions, the Ideas of the uh, at the at the battlefronts, if you will, at the battle lines, where the issues that I believe are going to define Islamic reformation, that are going to define that that large divide between the Islamic world of Islamism and theocracy versus the West of modernity and universal human rights. This week is no different. We have a lot to talk about, but something missed uh, was mentioned just briefly on most networks. There was another significant terror attack, this time in France. We'll talk about that from an ISIS jihadi. And I do want to do an epilogue to the long discussion we had last time about Saudi Arabia and the Khashoggi affair and some of the nuances of that. Uh, The Senate had a vote on that this week. We'll also talk about, oh, a little comment that uh, Morning Joe's show made on Secretary Pompeo that I found beyond offensive, and I think has something to be learned there. And last, Iran's talking about the resistance, their resistance. What does that mean, and how does that apply to the red-green axis? So first, make no mistake, the the Islamist threat has not gone away. Make no mistake, terror attacks continue to be at the top of the list of national security threats in the west, and certainly the amount has decreased, I think in large part, no doubt, due to the fact that the command and control center for ISIS in Syria has no longer been able to operate in the open in Raqqa or in northern Iraq or elsewhere. It is now basically underground. Yes, there are some strongholds left of Jibril Nusra and a few other ISIS elements, but at the end of the day, they've now gone back to what is the more Established venue for radical Islamists, which is the web, which is underground, which is in mountains and caves, and elsewhere. But this week, Sharif Shakat, twenty-nine, a known wolf. What do I mean by known wolf? He was known to authorities. He was arrested probably eight, nine times on what they call petty crimes, stealing and shoplifting, things like that. But bottom line is, is he was on a watch list. He was one of the. Twenty thousand plus on the French watch list. He killed three, injured thirteen during a shootout. In I'm sorry, a shooting, no shootout. He was the only one shooting at innocent folks at a Christmas market in Strasbourg this week on Tuesday. He then escaped, and a manhunt went underway, and he was thankfully found, and then died in the shootout that happened with law enforcement three days later. He was born in Strasbourg. This is not an immigrant. This is not a refugee. He was born in Strasbourg, and he shouted, Allahu Akbar, God is great, as he opened fire at the French Christmas market. Prosecutor Remy Heitz said during a press conference the day after the shooting on Wednesday this week that he was on every, for every security watch list that they had. He had more than 24 convictions for petty crimes in France, Germany, and Switzerland. I think what's interesting is they, I think, are beginning to get it that you have to quickly find out what was the support network for this guy. They arrested five more people quickly. And they were all felt to be part of his entourage, but also included his parents and two of his brothers. So, again, this guy, God knows where he was running for a few days, and thankfully they found him using every means necessary to find him as he was hiding out in the neighborhoods in France and Strasbourg. But at the end of the day, three people will not see Christmas. Thirteen people are injured and may spend it in the hospital. He declared allegiance to ISIS. ISIS hasn't taken credit, but they never need to. This gentleman already associated himself with ISIS. Are these simply hiccups? Or is this a sign that the threat continues? And I believe, you know, we can argue about what type of rebranding ISIS will have. Jihadism continues. ISIS may be waning, but jihadism continues, and ISIS still has the primary global brand. So individuals like Shakat, 29 years old, commit an act of terror. We can talk about our. And, as we certainly do, our hearts and prayers go to the families, and we pray that this strengthen our resolve to defeat the ideologies, not just the militants but the ideologies that fuel them, and that this serve as another reminder that we have a lot of work to do in the West. We have a lot of work to begin to unravel not only why was this guy in a watchless mist, <clears throat> obviously. It's because there are 20,000 of them. So we have a lot of known wolves. What do we do with them? Was there a way to predict this guy's behavior? There is a way to decrease the numbers adding on to that list on a weekly basis. And In an upcoming program, I'm going to talk to you about how do you de-radicalize, de-radicalization maybe. I think a lost effort in many ways, but we learn a lot from de-radicalization. We learn how to counter-radicalize and how to figure out which ideas we need to promote in a bigger way. So just like possibly working with end-stage drug addicts who try to commit suicide and you try to get them off drugs, some you may succeed, a majority or plurality you may not, you may fail, they may end up ODing at some time, but by treating them you learn about the aspects of the disease to prevent and take that knowledge to others to prevent thousands upon thousands from getting ever, ever addicted. And I think similarly, when you're dealing with political Islam, when you're dealing with Islamism, understanding the way each of these cases from the Boston Bombers to the uh, Pulse nightclub in Florida to Chattanooga, on and on, and now Strasbourg, Remember, we had a Christmas shooting in Berlin a couple years ago on Christmas Day. I was called by media that day and the next day, and again, it was a guy, I think a couple actually that had crossed the border were EU citizens, but not necessarily German, had come from Italy and had been deported from Italy and went to Germany and committed vehicular jihad. No, ladies and gentlemen, the war is not over. We haven't even begun to touch the surface of countering the ideas that are radicalizing these individuals. And this is an era when ISIS's grievances aren't really about the West. ISIS's grievances are mainly about Assad or about other Muslim dictators. So, if you think that somehow American intervention is the problem, you know, they used to say, as I've said before, there's an Arabic saying that when the professor points to the moon, the idiot looks at the finger. So the source, the distant source of the ideology is Islamism. The belief in the Islamic State, the supremacy, the, ide- the identification of the movement of the brothers. That when one finger is ill, the rest of the body is sick, that is the hadith that's misused by radicals to brainwash them into thinking that they're all one body regardless of nation state, and that that all needs to be addressed as one nation state, as an ummah. So this shakat committed an act of terror again, and we're faced with dealing with it and the fallout, will we learn anything or just, again, go back to our ways? I heard people talking about it this week, saying, Gosh, I'm getting rusty with my description of radical Islamists. It's been a while. Well, that, that's the goal, right? But the message that I wanted to bring to you today is that you might be getting rusty. We all might be getting rusty. Why? Because the Islamists have figured out that one of their biggest liabilities is the militants. The militants are their biggest liability. Why? Because nothing wakes up America, nothing wakes up France, nothing wakes up the West more than viciously killing innocents in public places. So acts of terror that are made to bring the West into isolationism, they've almost won that war, Right? Um, the West has become more isolationist. They got, We got very little out of Iraq. We got, if anything, we lost it to Iran now. We've had uh, 18 years of war in Afghanistan, if not uh, more. And we've gotten little to show for that. Uh, on and on. So the Islamists have not only been able to continue the chaos and disruption in those countries, but their acts of terrorism have made the West retract in some ways. Yes, we've become more openly, thanks to presidents like President Trump and President Bush, we've become, uh, I think, much more targeted and surgical in our ability to target radical organizations, radical Islamists. I think President Obama kicked that can down the road. But push came to shove. He did go get bin Laden. Push came to shove. He did begin the conflict to try to end ISIS. But he also caused the vacuum in Iraq that allowed it to grow. But I have to tell you, the strategy of Islamists... Remember, Islamism is an ideological movement. A movement of political Islam that has civic parts, civil society, religious elements in mosques, university academic centers, political movements and, and members that support them in parliaments and governments... So they cross every sector of society in order to influence policy, academia, and civil movements. So to them, things that rile up the population to move military and police against their populations is not a smart move. And that's what the radical Islamists from 9-11 on have done. So when 9-11 happened, Al-Qaeda was quickly in the crosshairs of the Muslim Brotherhood. who were trying to normalize themselves and hide into society with their goals of civilizational jihad. And all of a sudden, the militant jihadists brought the focus of the light upon all the Muslims in the West. That wasn't as planned by the Muslim Brotherhood. So while the Muslim Brotherhood's ideology, I think, is part of the Conveyor belt towards radicalization, and there's no doubt that there are many leaders of Al Qaeda and al Nusra and, and Hamas and others that not only are Muslim Brotherhood but have come directly from them. There is significant debate, internecine debates, within the Islamist movements about whether the means is best achieved confrontationally to bring about disruption. And truly separate the land of Islam from the land of war, or if they should use civil society, or both ways, in order to achieve that ends. And I think ultimately now you're seeing the, in this past five to ten years, now you are seeing the, I think, the winning of the nonviolent Islamists the nonviolent Islamists who are beginning to, I think, cherish the defeat of the radical Islamists so that they can begin to build bonds with the left, build bonds with the socialists and the collectivists as they demonize those who are not in that as fascists and populists and nationalists and other things, and they begin to slowly spread their movements through feminists and other Uh, collectivists that don't care to look into the real ideology of the bigoted Islamists, the Louis Farrakhans, the Hamases of the world, the anti-Semites of the Islamist movement, doesn't matter. So they're able to do that more as there's less acts of terror coming from within the Muslim population, even than the Islamists, if you will. So I think that's a, a good segue to talk about this recent Senate vote on Saudi Arabia. What does it mean? What can we learn from it? Let's talk about that. So, when we talk about Saudi Arabia, you know, last time I I spent some time talking about Khashoggi and the whole sort of bizarre reaction in the West, and you can go back and listen to that if you want. Um, But this week, the Senate decided to move forward with a bipartisan resolution to condemn Saudi Arabia, to condemn the arms sales, to condemn their actions in Yemen. And they did that all with the preface being the wanton assassination of a Saudi resident who they identified as an American resident. I'm not sure if that's true, but anyway... He was certainly writing for the Washington Post and living in America at the time. If he was on a visa or or as a resident, uh, that's uh, probably not as important. But at the end of the day, in a world where people are being slaughtered in the Middle East and Yemen and Libya and Syria, the Saudis have been beheading. You know, the Saudis have been beheading folks chopping their arms off and doing things that are medieval, grotesque, and inhuman for decades. And now all of a sudden the Senate has gotten a conscience on this. Now all of a sudden we're reading things from good old Senator Paul that I find actually just bizarre for someone who voted against the Iran deal, to break the Iran deal, to put sanctions for it, For someone who thought that um, we should not get entangled with Russia and we should just pull out our troops from wherever possible because we're not doing any good in the world really had no ideas, if you will, and no concept on what Russia, China, Iran were doing while we were absent. Now, we can have that debate if you want about non-interventionism, etc., but... At the end of the day, when he releases a statement now about today in a historic vote, the Senate sent a clear message to Saudi Arabia that we will not turn a blind eye to their abuse of human rights, killing of dissidents and innocent Yemenis, and fueling of a humanitarian crisis. Oh, really? What about your blind eye to what happened in Syria and Iran? you have never put a resolution like this against Iran. Since entering the Senate, I've spoken out, Rand Paul said, against Congress's abdication of its constitutional responsibilities in foreign policy. And I've worked across the aisle to help build the bipartisan consensus that made its voice loudly heard today. Oh, seriously, now he's taking credit on being tough on Saudi Arabia, when the far bigger threat, where, where if he got his way and the Saudis completely pulled out of Yemen and the Houthis when and Iran then sets up a base in Yemen, would that be in an American and Yemeni interests, in Yemeni humanitarian interests? I, I don't think so. I mean, this is the most twisted method of developing foreign policy I've ever seen. He said he's going to continue to work to ensure that today's victory is just the beginning of a long way to change in how Congress operates. Oh, seriously, now this is a lesson to how Congress operates in foreign policy. Forget the decades in ignoring the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom's desire to implement sanctions on Saudi Arabia because of their inability and refusal to allow churches to be built, to allow different types of Qur'ans, let alone Bibles and Old Testaments, to be brought into Saudi Arabia. Sanctions which included benchmarks to show that they've liberalized their treatment of Shia imams that they assassinated and killed, that we by name named and the Senate ignored. And the President, Bush, and Obama gave waivers to because they are too close an ally. But now Khashoggi gets assassinated and all hell breaks loose. And now he becomes a, a fan of the Yemeni people. When this guy, I'm sorry, the fellow ophthalmologist of Bashar Assad and now Rand Paul, seemed to have never made such statements about the Syrian people. There was an American citizen that was tortured and killed just two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Nobody heard about her. She had been held by the regime. Her family had been trying to get every administration from uh, before Obama to now Trump, to pay attention. She was in custody for three years, was killed in its custody according to a human rights group. Leila Shweikani. was born and spent her early years in Damascus but lived in Chicago as a human, humanitarian activist. She returned to Syria in 2015, was detained in February 2016. She was registered in the Civil Registry Department as dead in December 28, 2016. She was executed in Sedania military prison in Damascus suburbs government. She wasn't just killed. She her story resurfaced a few weeks ago. And even those of us enmeshed in this work didn't get all the details till recently. So I'm sorry, the the, the, the hypocrisy, the duplicity And the selective indignation by those who passed this, yes, many of the things written, and I have to tell you, hats off to Marco Rubio for including something I had been saying from the moment Khashoggi was found dead, reported dead. I said, the Saudis need to pay for this by releasing 10 prisoners of conscience. And in this bill, that really is more pro forma, I don't think it carries any teeth, is a demand for the release of Raif Bedoui. And I think that would make sense. Not stopping an arms deal. Yes, I think having better benchmarks in Yemen might be true, but not disarming a country that sits over across the Red Sea from Iran that would love to see it weaken, and that will probably turn to Russia, China, or elsewhere to get its weapons to keep itself safe. Yes, those weapons are often used domestically, which is not part of the contract when we give them. And yes, it's evil. But if we want that to change, that's going to be through democratization, through helping those on the ground who share our values and not towards foreign infiltration by Iran, Russia, Assadists, and others and empowering a Shia favorite of that Sunni-Shia divide. So, Mr. Paul... And others who passed this, I think some of it is long, long overdue. But the context is just incredulous. It's incredulous. It really belies an understanding of what happens if Saudi Arabia gets weakened. It becomes an endorsement of Iran. No mention from any of of Dr. Paul's speeches of his fellow ophthalmologist Bashar Assad and how that would empower him, how it would empower Khamenei how it empowers the Shia side of the Sunni-Shia divide of radical Islamism in the Middle East. No, if we want to start claiming that we are washing our hands clean of that evil, we have a lot of work to do, but we better withdraw, not with vacuums like we did in Iraq that then allowed Iraq to be taken over by Iran. That's exactly what Rand Paul and this bill is calling for to happen in Yemen. The same mistake that Obama did, they're calling for President Trump to make. And I hope he doesn't heed it. And I have to tell you, on top of this mess we saw on the Morning Joe program today, or this week, I should say, Brzezinski decides, Micah Brzezinski, the co-host on Morning Joe, they started laying into Secretary Pompeo. And fine, people can disagree with Pompeo's defense of America's stance with Saudi Arabia, especially now in the wake of the Khashoggi affair. You can disagree with that. I get that. your Whatever other reasons the Islamists or the Qatar lobby or Turkish lobby have put into your head. But at the end of the day, or the Iranian or Assad lobby, she said, and I quote, and this is offensive, but I'm going to say it just so you know what she said. She said, But why does Mike Pompeo care right now? I understand that Donald Trump doesn't care. Are the pathetic deflections that we just heard when he appeared on Fox and Friends, is that a patriot speaking? Or is it a wannabe dictator's butt boy? Yeah, that's what she said. I'm dead serious. Are these the words of a patriot? So two things I find very offensive. One is obviously the slur against the gay community, which last I heard was 30 years ago, that kind of comment in, in high school. And here you have an anchor on MSNBC saying, and just a week ago we were debating whether on Twitter it was relevant that the Heisman Trophy winner had written a slur against gays when he was 14 years old. And now you have an anchor making millions in that position who will probably get a pass. Now, had a conservative made this kind of comment? The liberals and the left and others would be wanting their head on a platter. But she makes this comment about a Army veteran, a patriot, Secretary Pompeo, who has been proven to, who has proven himself as as not only a patriot and a a hero, uh, but has just been doing a fantastic job as a Secretary of State. But to say that he is beholden to dictators is absurd. He's dealing with realpolitik. Of the Middle East, he was handed by an administration that completely abandoned the Saudis and turned everything over, including $150 billion, to the Iranians. And I'm sorry, Secretary Pompeo is nobody's water boy. Now she used a different term, but I refused to do that. And then she apologized. It's absurd. And you know, the other part that's really, really offensive also is to question the patriotism. Why all of a sudden, if somebody is dealing with realpolitik, they're questioning patriotism. i never heard Pompeo defend the Saudis' way of life or their theocracy or other things. He simply has a short-term pragmatic approach to our relationship with them. Would I like to see us tougher? Absolutely. But this is the world that our Secretary of State, the chief diplomat, He's not a head of the information operations, he's head of the diplomatic corps. <laughs> Last, and I think this is an important subject, I want to talk about what's coming out of the Iranian media nowadays. <music> When you talk about Saudi Arabia, you have to talk also about Iran. And just look at the media in Iran with the state television, state press, websites, blogs, propaganda from the information agencies saying, and you'll see exactly how they envision winning. Ayatollah Khamenei told his Press TV, which is their English arm of their state-sponsored media, Islam-based resistance movement is upsetting the United States. The leader of the Islamic Revolution, Ayatollah Sayyid Ali Khamenei, says a resistant movement based in Islam is building up across the world, which is unsettling the world powers, especially the United States. And he said, This sensitivity in the United States and the Middle East is due to the rise of Islam and the Islamic Awakening, which is threatening the arrogant powers. The world's arrogant powers, and at the top of them, the criminal America and the great Satan are sensitive to the Western Asia, is due to a spirit of the reception of Islam and Islamic Awakening among the regional nations, he told the International Islamic Unity Conference. He said, anywhere where Islam has dominated the hearts and minds, the arrogance has been slapped. And we seriously believe that the arrogance will be slapped again from the Islamic awakening in this region. He goes on to say, this is not the onion, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Iranian government. Religious scholars will strengthen the Islamic awakening and resistance movement in the region as much as they can because the only way salvation of the region is to spread the spirit and the thinking. Our advice to you before you lose this war is to return to the rule of Islam and come under the authority of Allah because the rule of America and Satan will not benefit you. And then he cited Saudi Arabia, which have become the target of insults by President Trump, saying the U.S. leaders remark are an insult to all Muslims. So, it's interesting, and he talked about Yemen also in this speech. I think you see the corollary that the Senate seems to really not care about. Their resolution will be used by Iran to say that we are weak, to say that uh, the allies of the United States are non-Islamic. Actually, it's interesting, care the Council on American-Islamic Relations this week was responding to an editorial that tied Linda Sorsour to Louis Farrakhan and other radicals in the Islamist movement in America. And they basically spread it as information that was released by radicals and Islamophobes. And it was bizarre that that came out of the Saudi government, Al-Arabiya. Now, I don't know the author well, so I'm not going to endorse that piece, but I, I will tell you that simply information that criticizes and exposes the anti-Semitism of Linda Sarsour and Saraj Wahaj and the network of the Women's March and others. That is not Islamophobia. And the number one leader, Mohammed Salman, King Salman, who's been the number one of the top 500 Muslims, thought by Westerners in the world. So the Westerners that include the Islamic side of North America and many centers that are funded by Middle East governments and also by American Muslims always laud the king of Saudi Arabia as the most influential Muslim on the planet. And yet now they're claiming that they're basically Islamophobes. Why? Because there's been a shift in the last six months where they're against the Muslim Brotherhood, and that has led to a cessation of their funding, a cessation of their interaction, and now they're beginning to expose a lot of their ideas. This includes the Egyptian government working against the Brotherhood in the West, and the Saudi government working against the Brotherhood in the West. But you see the reaction of the Islamists here that now is starting to call them Islamophobes, when before they were cheering them on as the number one Muslims on the planet shows you their own hypocrisy. But I think if you look at the media in Iran, you start to get a sense of the need to prioritize who our enemies are. Are the Saudis giving speeches from Mecca about resurgence of the caliphate against the evil of the West and the great Satan and the lesser Satan and the evil Jews and their need to be defeated or convert. There's, I think, precursors to that in Wahhabi Islam, but it's certainly not as belligerent as the Iranian Khamenists. Today, you know, today you will see this article on their website. This speech at the Islamic Unity Conference that included many countries across the planet. So, dear senators, when you... Pass something, have it have a global meeting, not just against one country. Demand these things, not only, it's not only the Kashogjis of the world that are being assassinated by Saudi Arabia. The Iranians are, are, are torturing hundreds and thousands in their prisons. The Islamic Republic of Pakistan, why didn't you call for the release of Asiya Bibi? The protection and that she be brought to the United States to be given Asylum. I think she's gotten asylum now. Hopefully she's left. I don't believe she has yet. I mean, these are all things that show consistency, and this is what we've been missing. I'm sorry. If there is, if this was a new Rand Paul doctrine or a Lindsey Graham doctrine, it appears to simply be a Game of Thrones to them. And that was the name of my episode last week. But I think the last point I wanted to make about this speech from Khamenei is that he called it a resistance. Did you? I hope you didn't miss that. He called it the Islamic resistance. Now, that's the name for those of you who know. Hamas is al L'Islamiyya with a meaning of, of, of the movement, the Islamic movement's resistance movement. So this is not a new term. Now, in the West, that term now has become part of the anti-Trump movement. The Washington Post talks about democracy going out where there's no light becoming darkness. But a lot of the media now are calling themselves the resistance. Now, I don't necessarily agree with the with the tenor with which President Trump has labeled the media the enemy of the state. Uh, they are not. Uh, I do believe many of them do not have America's interests at heart. They almost seem to be Working more for foreign governments, but that can be exposed short of calling our journalists enemy of the state, especially from the president. But regardless, I think it's refreshing to have some lack of fealty to the media. It's refreshing to have some openness about that. And oh, so what? The Christmas party was canceled with the media. So what? That the correspondence dinner is canceled in April. Those were all for show anyway. And then they'd go and stab conservatives in the back only to use them for a prop when they need them. But at the end of the day, the resistance, the Islamists get it. If they use the same terminology, that red-green axis between the red socialists and communists and the green the Islamists they'll use the same terms in English, Arabic Farsi Kurdish, whatever it might be actually not Kurdish, there aren't the Islamists that are Kurdish significantly but bottom line is, is in Muslim majority countries and their languages Pashto, Urdu whatever it might be they will start using terms like resistance because the West is using it against Trump, against Israel And they will co-opt that language and use it for Islamic supremacism as a resistance. And that's happening. So if we're going to win this, if we're going to reform, we need to work with liberal Muslims. We need to work with reformers that acknowledge the need to defeat every concept of the Islamic State, defeat every concept of blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, defeat the concept of an Islamic movement or Islamic resistance in, in general, And to be consistent. I've called for resolutions against Saudi Arabia for years. But that should include resolutions against Assad, against Iran, the Khamenists, the dictators across the region. And a new liberty doctrine should evolve. A doctrine of advancing liberty. But the way it was done this week was simply. I mean, you have a street in Washington now named after Khashoggi. Does that make sense to name a street for the embassies where the Saudi embassy is on after Khashoggi? And the guy was anti Israel. He was, uh, you know, not somebody that shared American values. He might have at the end been anti Saudi, so they wanted to make a point, but not necessarily a champion for the ideals that are on the streets nearby there where our founding fathers were. As always, it is an honor to be with you. Share this podcast. Subscribe to it on blaze.com backslash podcast. The backslash podcast. Find me on SoundCloud and iTunes. And share this podcast and share others. And I'll see you again next week on Reform This. This is Dr. Zudi Jaster. God bless. Reform this with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.